today on 2C Fans. At the end, one of the kids said, uh, well, what is the difference is in mud? What makes one mud better than the next? And I said, do you have any idea how long I've been waiting for somebody to ask me that? <laughs> I feel like it had something to do with the cycling of nutrients from the surface of no How are you so smart? Because I read your paper. She <laughs> really reads. Your she job, reads. Yeah, she, I, I she has I, no I, fun. I she just reads. Hello and welcome to Two C Fans at Moat Marine Laboratory. I'm Haley Rutger. And I think I'm Joe Nicholson. Are you sure? I don't know. We're here with Jordan Beckler. <laughs> Doctor Jordan Beckler. Doctor Jordan Beckler. Hey Jordan, why don't you tell us your title at Moat? Howdy y'all. I'm uh, like you said, Jordan. Thanks for the intro. Um, I'm the uh, program manager uh, for the Ocean Technology Research Program. So, okay, so describe some of the things you do during a typical day as manager of ocean technology research. Hmm. Most of the, the time these days I'm uh, sitting behind a desk, uh, writing proposals, writing papers. But that's uh, not what people want to hear. Playing, <laughs> play, play, playing solitaire and uh, trimming his fingernails. No. Okay, so what are the proposals for? Like, name an example. Okay, so um, right now we're actually working on a proposal for the golf research program. It's, it's a uh, National Academies of Science uh, uh, I guess that's the 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 golf research program is a, is a, a sub program of the of, of the National Academies and um, the actual call is for restoration monitoring. So there's all this ongoing restoration uh, in the Gulf of Mexico from because of Deepwater Horizon. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, there's a movie about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, a lot of uh, there's been a lot of restoration funded, but a lot of it goes unmonitored so there's really no performance monitoring i shouldn't say none but there's relatively little accountability for the amount of money that has been spent on restoration wow so you're proposing ways to determine if we're meeting our goals i guess yeah um well yeah we're 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 proposing uh we want to get at the best ways to monitor um actual restoration efforts so it's one question how do you best actually restore things so for instance we're working on seagrass so with seagrass do you actually uh, just clean up the the input water so you clear up the water quality allow more light for the plants to grow or do you actually go out there and say plant new seagrass so do transplant work so that's that question is how do you best uh, you know do the restoration but what this proposal is getting at is sort of uh, you know, one step further, how do you best monitor these restoration efforts? So t to be honest, it's, it's really doing a number on my brain trying to, 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 to look directly at the monitoring instead of the restoration. But the, the whole reason that um, I'm actually involved is uh, we want to use these really cool new electrochemical tools to monitor sediments, the idea being that the sediments and specifically the iron content, the iron to carbon ratio could be one of the primary factors that's governing uh, whether seagrass restoration will actually be successful and um, you know it's it's certainly not considered in in any uh, actual implemented uh, restoration monitoring plans. Can I ask Jordan a, a, a more important question? Feel free. <clears throat> What's your favorite color? 
<laughs> Sorry, I was just sipping my espresso. Uh, it's my afternoon espresso. Yeah, yeah, you know. You know. Uh, well, I like green. You do like I green. I used to like blue. Yeah. Green these but days. But now you switched to green. Yeah, right. sure did, yeah. Right. I mean, too many right. people like blue. Well, you know. Yeah, that's true. Blue's probably the most common color. Nope, green. I like green, too. And I like yellow. Nobody likes yellow. Well, it's yellow. yellow. Yeah, when I was a kid, the walls in my room were yellow, and my mom was like, this will keep you awake at night. I'm like, I don't care. Jaundice. <laughs> <laughs> he, he thinks of jaundice. I was a jaundice baby, by the way. I cool. wasn't always a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of that, where are you from, Jordan? Uh, well, I've, um, in terms of, of my life, I've actually moved around quite a bit. Um, I guess you could say my roots are by the ocean, though, so I grew up on the Jersey Shore. Uh, it's actually a really nice place. Um, what else? Uh, Florida, then. Uh, I actually moved to Florida uh, right before Hurricane Andrew, I think it was back in... Me too, 92. Yeah. Yeah, I moved there a week or two beforehand. I moved in August to Florida <laughs> of 92, and then like a week or two later... Andrew hit, and I, I was like, I, "Why did I come here?" I loved hurricanes ever since because really? of that. I no, thought I was, it was like, so oh exciting. My God, I, I'm I was, an idiot. You know, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, For the viewers or listeners at home, Jordan has a tattoo of a hurricane on his uh, right arm. Sure do. He does. And you, so you, so you I, I moved to, to Florida, school, but you um, came to Florida in '92. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a little stint in Montana, actually, in middle school. There are no hurricanes there. No hurricanes, but you know, I. Fell in love with the mountains and trout fishing and all that. So, uh, pretty well-rounded upbringing, I'd say, um, if I if I do say so myself. But <laughs> then I eventually went to uh, Georgia Tech in Atlanta for college. Um, originally, computer engineering ended up switching uh, to earth and atmospheric sciences. I wanted to study hurricanes, uh, but then I actually did some research uh, in geochemistry. I hadn't heard of geochemistry prior to that. Yeah, let me say most of our listeners might not have heard of geochemistry. Mm-hmm. So, what what do you how do you define it? What well, is so geochemistry? I work on, on uh, aqueous low temperature geochemistry. So okay, how hold do on, stop, stop, stop. Water, what? aqueous water. Oh, thank and you. Rocks okay. interacting pretty much at the surface of the earth, and then there's high temperature geochemistry, which is uh, you know more volcanism or petroleum that kind of stuff, hmm. deep subterranean. So you're um, like where the dirt meets the sea. You bet. Yeah. Ooh, that uh, makes a, mud. Ended up going He's on. mud. <laughs> I absolutely love mud. mud. <laughs> you know, we we did a little little f- funny outtake uh, yesterday. We had a, a summer camp come by. Uh, so Mode, I guess, is putting on this summer camp about careers. Uh. So the education program asked me to put on a little thirty minute demo, I guess, of of my lab and. Uh, tell them what about my career, kind of like how I'm doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at the end, one of the kids asked me, we were telling them about a, a microbial fuel cell project where we actually generate sediments from, um, or we, I'm sorry, we generate <laughs> energy from sediments. Yeah. And um, of, at the end, one of the kids said, uh, well, what is the differences in mud? What makes one mud better than the next? And I said, do you have any idea how long I've been waiting for somebody to ask me that? <laughs> Finally, somebody with enough brains. Uh, he got more of an answer than he than he bargained for. Oh, <laughs> Went oh. out for about three or four minutes. Oh, bad. Oh my God. So, what does make one type of mud better than other mud? 
Well, well I wrote now it. we got to go into this three or four minute long. I'll make it quick. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I study iron. Yep. Uh, wrote a dissertation about iron. It's 250-some-odd pages. So uh, basically uh, the mud that I study uh, is rich in iron. Um, I, I, do, I study what's called sediment diagenesis, which is really – what happens, you never heard of this word either, Joe, have no, you? No, 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 no. Most folks haven't. Every time I, I give a talk, I survey the, the class. I say, how many folks have heard of this? And maybe one hand goes up if I'm lucky. So, like, dual genesis, like the... Uh, I'm going to uh, take a guess. Dia. Dia. Is it, dia dual I forget. Like, I, I saw one of your dia. papers Dual, dual origination of something. I feel or, like it had something to do with the cycling of nutrients from the surface of... No How are you so smart? Because I read your paper. She <laughs> really good at your she job, reads, Haley. Yeah, she, I, I she do. has I, no I, fun. Think, she just reads. Yeah, you, you do really good work, Haley. Um, Thanks, Jordan, and shut <laughs> up, <got> Joe. <laughs> Whoa, dude, see? <laughs> <laughs> Try working with her. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so we're what, with diogenesis. What, what happens when, when carbon and uh, uh, other... Say, uh, terrigenous or I'm gonna okay. try and I'm gonna try and dumb this down for you, Joe. Thanks, man. So just just material. What happens when Earth things sediment yeah, uh, to you know to the seafloor, and then uh, let's say over the next anywhere from a couple weeks all the way to thousands of years, what happens? How does it transform? Uh, and it's all fueled by organic carbon. So plant detritus, uh, leaf litter. Uh, other things, I don't know what, what word is appropriate algae. to use on, on this. Sure, Anything algae and waste material. Waste material. Decomposing mm-hmm. dead stuff. Decomposing <laughs> whales. Decomposing. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Uh, and then... It gets compressed. Yes, yes, actually it, it does. it forms oil. Down deep. So yes. I look at the stuff that happens, say, in the top meter or so. Uh, and that's where all the most interesting stuff happens. In the first meter. There's actually an incredible... Oh, I want to say predictable series of zones, of reaction zones that will take place vertically in this top column of sediments. And or mud. there's probably a, a couple thousand people in the world that, 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 you know, their career actually revolves around studying this, and, and yet very few people actually know what it is. So hmm. super interesting. And So you, like, expect to see similar reactions based on, like, where you are in the layers of mud? You bet, and and that is all going to be affected. And the, and the main reason why do we care? I'll get at that. Yeah. Um, but yet yeah, to go with with what you said, uh, it's all fueled by say, the ratios of, for instance, carbon in my case to iron. So near shore, you can have a lot of iron being deposited because the iron, for the most part, comes from land. Terrigenous. Uh, terrigenous. Terrigenous, sure. right? So just <laughs> iron oxides, like red soil, right? This yeah, kind of stuff. Right. Um, and then you're going to have a zone where you have these bacteria. They're called uh, dissimilatory iron-reducing bacteria. And somehow these bacteria have a trick where they can actually strip an electron off of this organic matter and dump it onto these iron oxides. And when they do so, it's it's like a battery, you know, they've generated an electron transfer and then with that they can generate ATP, which is sort of the universal currency of of energy that, that life uses. We got um, it in our cells too. Yep. You bet ATP we do. energy. You bet we That's do. how we work, baby. 
but <laughs> but you know these bacteria as cool as they are they're not as awesome as as we are because really if they were that smart they would use oxygen uh, right okay. but they live at the zone below where the oxygen can actually penetrate the sediments so so they are smarter then because they are they found a way to live they found there a way go. to breathe rust as jordan has said to me yeah, yeah sure yeah, While yeah living in mud uh but why do we care right yeah why? Yeah. Why do we care? <laughs> yeah. Why do we care about mud? We want to know about the pathways, and the rates, and the extent. Because what happens, Joe, pathways. when these bacteria do their trick and they eat this carbon, just like us? What happens to the carbon? It turns. Pop quiz, hot shot. It turns into energy, and then is turned converted to waste. Whatever is not used is turned into waste and is expelled. Uh. Perhaps a little bit. They, they do generate some waste. You know, they may take some uh, complex form of organic carbon and maybe break it down to some organic acids. But along with that, they generate carbon dioxide. We call that waste too, right? Yeah, carbon, sure, yeah. sure. Just like us, carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide. So this goes back so up into the atmosphere potentially. And Joe uh, right. Joe right. You know, it has a, a negative effect, I guess. It's a, it's a feedback mechanism for uh, carbon cycling. This organic carbon that would have otherwise been buried at the bottom of the ocean and eventually subducted and subducted on continental plates, right, that are subducting so below yes, other yes, plates. Yes, Pulled underneath. Lost, <laughs> yes. Lost for hundreds of millions of years. So for all in, intents and purposes, they're, they're gone from our, uh, I guess, uh, biosphere or terrestrial sphere, whatever you yeah, want to call we, it, yeah, the surface of the earth. Yeah, so, so we've essentially yeah. removed carbon from the atmosphere. Uh, but these bacteria, they have you, you have to you have to know how much they're sending back into the atmosphere, how much of that process is being reversed, how much of the burial process is being reversed, um, in order to in order to make really accurate predictions as to say climate change, what's happening to carbon in the future. So. So in okay, so we one way that we talk about doing this research is to understand like greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide, climate change, our global climate. But in your heart of hearts as a human being, why do you like doing it? <laughs> did you say heart of hearts? Yeah, I did. Jordan, do you do you have a heart of hearts? For the kids, Joe. I okay. do it for the kids. All right. <laughs> okay. For the kids. <laughs> Nobody ever thinks yeah. about the children. You know, we have five interns right now running around upstairs third floor you probably hear them pitter patter of their feet (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's it's a busy time of year um summers i guess uh have always been busy this is my third summer here at moat wow yeah is that right yeah 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 yeah. 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 and um yeah uh it's you know, we have, seems like, I guess we do, we have more interns each, each year, uh, and they each have their own project. Uh, you know, I, I try not to give them, like, dishwashing activities. Aww. We're trying to, we're, we're trying to make them like science. That's the whole point of us doing it. We want them to Well, that does, that, sta- that goes careers. against all standard conventions of being an intern. <laughs> Wash this, true. clean that. That is true. Uh, I don't know, it's not like, it's not the industrial revolution anymore. We can treat them kindly. The, knowing that I'm giving back, sure. Okay. Sure. Makes sense. Hey, uh, one of your interns, is it one of your interns working on this like idea of a microbe fuel cell? Fuel what did cell? They do? That's Gabe. He's our high school intern. High school intern, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Yeah. Um, he's working on this fuel cell thing? He's, he's working on a project that's unfunded and correct. Yeah. Uh, wow. What you said. Um, it's really, uh, it's, it's one of my favorite ideas I've ever had, actually. I'm not sure I want to give it away on the air. <laughs> okay, so no Uh-oh. talking about this. Stop. If yeah. you're interested, email me at, at the end at, of that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I've heard of different kinds of fuel cells before that involve things that that are like microbes and stuff. Well, yeah. This is so. The idea, right? Is, is oh, don't give it away. Don't give these, it away. These sediments, they, as I mentioned, remember. So the the carbon hits the sediment and it eventually sinks. And even in a little, uh, you know, Tupperware container that we have in our lab, it's only, what, a few inches tall. And by the bottom of that Tupperware container, you have a different electrical potential than you do at the surface. You have a higher density of electrons. You have a more chemically reducing environment down there. So you have a gradient, sort of. Thank you. Perfect a word. Gradient. I probably wouldn't even said that word, but that's a great word. Or, um, or I don't know if it's a gradient. No, it is. A, it's the exact okay. description of the system. And so if you can, say, artificially connect right. your deep sediments with your surface sediments, which are oxygenated, we purposely bubble air through them with a the fish tank, now you've created this potential that you can transfer electrons through. Hmm. And now imagine you can harvest these electrons. And now imagine you, and I'll just tell a little bit about the project. You engage, you engage these students. Now each classroom or each group of students from around the country now takes pride in their mud. They go out and they build their own fuel cell. People in Oklahoma can go dig up dirt from their backyard. They don't need ocean mud. Any kind of mud works. You just take some mud and saturate it with water. Uh, so why aren't we powering the entire world with by mud? mud. <laughs> well, I mean, realistically, the technology is not there. Okay. Um, you can't generate that much electricity. You don't have that much of a redox gradient. But think about it in this case, right? right. You have a deep sea instrument uh, 2,000 miles offshore. Um where, where there's no power source. There's no power source whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this thing's out there and at, at, a, at an ocean-spreading ridge. And let's say it's a, it's a geophysical instrument and it's measuring small changes in, in movement of the plates, you know, a couple centimeters a year or whatever. So it doesn't and, need that much power and there's no sun down there. Yeah. And, and you don't want to have, like, a battery that you have to replace. You, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So in that setting, that seems really clever. Mm-hmm. Oh. And so along with this, uh, Gabe, he's also, that's one thing, the sediments, the, the fuel cell, but he's also designing a homemade circuit, electrical circuit that's interfaced to an Arduino. Arduino, you may have heard of them. It's a little mm-hmm. custom tiny microcontroller. They're all the rage in the last five they years are. or so. The kids are all messing with them. That's what we use for our outreach program, the Ocean Technology Club also. And So it's a, like um, a real, like a primitive programmable little computer? Kind of yes. Thing. Yes. Yes. But, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, um, it you has know, imagine, actuators on it. And... So now this is measuring voltage and current and therefore power of this fuel cell. And now imagine all these classrooms around the world build their own, right? So now they build circuits, they program these circuits, they build these fuel cells, they hook everything together, and now all this information transfers to one big central website. Now it's like a contest. Hmm. Which student has the best mud? Hmm. And then we do something with the winners, but I won't, 
I won't tell you this secret, but okay. that's kind of the idea. I mean, it's it's far fetched, but it's cool, and I, I think it's I think it's good enough to to submit as a proposal, and we're searching for proper funding outlets now. That was, that's a cool um, idea. Yeah. Honestly, that's one of the most obscure projects that we're working on right now. So we <laughs> want to switch gears back to the. So where where are you when these do. when these ideas um, hit you? Are you shower, like you're, shower. you're in the shower? Yeah. I truly am. Although, yeah. however, I I got an iPhone seven and it's waterproof, so I oh, kind of yeah. started listening to podcasts in the in the shower. Okay, so. like two C fans. I want know. that. Yeah. yeah, I want that. hundred percent honest, guys. Yeah, the yeah. first time I listened to C fans was in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! I was gonna ask Jordan if um, if he could tell us about a few of the pieces of monitoring technology that we actually use already as like a as like staples of research around here. I know of a few. Want to mm. name some? Name some, Jordan. Uh, we use a lot. <laughs> Pick one. Uh, so. Okay. The fancy, number one. The number one. Fancy one. Yeah. It's, it's actually not the number one, but okay, it's the number well, one. The, that's the most the sexiest flashy. one. Yeah. There you go. Sexiest. Yeah. Thanks. Um, it's uh, it's our glider. So it's our. Uh, it's made by a company called Teledyne Web Research. A glider. What does it look mm-hmm. like? If people haven't seen this. This is this is one of the few things that we don't actually make homemade in our lab. However, we do make custom payload, scientific payload packages for this glider. So instruments that measure something and ride mm-hmm. in the glider. Mm-hmm. So the glider itself is really, 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 uh, uh, I guess since about 2004, maybe a little before that, they started really taking a hold in ocean observation. And yep. they're by far the most efficient tool that we have to survey vast Large areas, areas of yeah. the oceans. Yeah, yeah. so... Uh, the way the glider works, what really separates apart, the thing looks like a torpedo, right? It's about six feet long. So if you ever see and it's it, like autonomous. A, if Sorry. You, if you see a yellow torpedo cruising around in the water by don't your be boat, scared. don't be scared. Do Just not. don't run over it. <laughs> Bright yellow, got wings, looks like a little airplane. It says property remote. It's got our phone number on it. But if you call on the weekends, nobody, nobody will answer. <laughs> Should probably update that. Yeah, yeah, yeah probably. Or put, get a voice. But message. it's the coolest thing because you, you just set it free and it goes autonomously out there doing collecting and doing its thing yeah for it could yeah. be what like over a month yeah we was well, yeah yeah you're right you're absolutely right uh we it doesn't use a propeller right so it uses it adjusts its internal buoyancy buoyancy modulation is how it actually manages to make both vertical and horizontal progress so it, it takes truly on glides water. in the water it's and the, then it pumps it out. Takes mm-hmm. some water, pumps mm-hmm. it out, and it's built in such a way that that makes it go up and down and diagonally. Like a sawtooth pattern. Imagine the teeth of a saw, right? That's the motion that it takes through the entire water column. So in the shallow waters near us, you know, we're in about, we survey anything from, say, 15 meters. So we have a routine transect, a routine path that we take from the 15-meter isobath, which is 15-meter water depth, out to the 40-meter isobath and back. Offshore Sarasota, and we pick it up down near, say, Englewood, Charlotte Harbor area. So that's Sarasota, West Florida, you know, central West Florida. So this glider, it doesn't like, does it go like 50 miles an hour? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're talking 10 miles a day (laughs) on a lucky day. It crawls. uh, So our missions are two weeks, but Joe, to go back to your previous question, uh, they crossed the Atlantic with this thing. So I I think we just... This past year, we swapped our batteries with lithium batteries instead of alkaline batteries. Longer lasting. Longer batteries. lasting Five and more lasting. dangerous. 
five times the cost. Yeah. And five uh, times more likely to explode. Yeah. yeah. Is that true? I guess so. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, shipping itself is actually pretty pricey. Yeah. So how did that, that transatlantic uh, glider you heard of, how did that get across without the remora sticking on it? <laughs> oh, well, yeah, they don't have uh, the issues nearly as much in the Atlantic Oh. I think there's a couple instances of so more issues. We in the Gulf, uh, we're just lucky that we have these sucker fish that... Oh my, don't get me started on remora fish. The listeners want to know. You know my joke? You know the joke that I say every oh time boy. I give a is, talk? Is this a good one? This is, this is, this is kind of what I get the cl- audience is this, with is every this clean? time. It's relatively clean. I mean, there's some innuendo, but it's... it's All right. You can always edit it, okay. right? Yeah. Here goes. Now I built it up. I don't even know if it's going to be funny anymore. Please, God. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the first uh, day I I started over here, I I was exploring, seeing what was around. First week I was here, seeing what was across the street. And I opened up a storage locker. um, And what I find in the storage locker, zip ties, plastic sheeting, duct tape, uh, women's pantyhose. Whoa. Um... Uh, I did I mention answer. duct tape and did I mention yeah, yeah, the, did the, I mention uh, Vaseline and hot sauce? Okay. Oh man. Right. My, my so, <laughs> you know, and I said, mm. "What the heck is going on at Moat Marine Lab?" <laughs> <laughs> and these are actually uh. all. Um, uh, this was these were all mechanisms that were tried to keep these remora fish off. So, for instance, you make a mixture of Vaseline and hot sauce, and you rub it on the outside of the glider in hopes that it would repel remoras. Because these sucker fish, they stick on the glider, and remember the glider is buoyancy, buoyancy. modulated. Yeah. So if you get 150 grams, each remora is about 150 grams, you get a, two or three of those attaching, all of a sudden the glider sinks, and it doesn't surface. And we don't hear from it for hours uh, days at sometimes, and we start freaking out because this thing is, is about the price of a Porsche, uh, low end Ferrari. Okay, and we uh, we get super nervous, and uh, eventually it calls home and it goes, "Auga!" And yeah, and at that point, you know, it's it's kind of uh, you know, it's it's bittersweet because we know our deployment's over. We got to go pick it up. We spend. You know, a couple, few, few thousand dollars just in logistics it costs us to go pick it up. Um, and a mission's over, but at least we got the glider back. Yeah. But on a, if, it, if you have a good mission with no remora, no crazy incidents, and the glider does fine, that saves a lot of money over time, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, you know, thinking about traditional oceanographic surveys, uh, I know I'm throwing a lot of money figures out, but it's about $10,000 a day to hire a big oceanographic vessel. And, you know, you got to hire a whole crew, scientific crew has to go out there, and you, you go, you, you travel, say, 10 miles, you drop a CTD rosette, measure salinity temperature on the way down, on the way back up, it fires these Niskin bottles, and you take samples from different depths, mm-hmm. you manually sample these, this stuff, and it's very expensive. So uh, the glider does all this for us, and... Like I said, we have custom payloads that we use. Uh, something developed in-house here. It's called, uh, good segue, uh, the optical phytoplankton discriminator. And does it, like, does it like some phytoplankton more than it others? It does. It does. I, yeah. I've been uh, trying to bring it up to, you know, 2017 uh, politically correct standards. But, um, <laughs> we mean it can tell the difference between some little tiny microscopic algae and others. Yeah, that is correct. What kind? Uh, 
Uh, well, it works best for Karenia brevis, which is our Florida red tide organism, which causes all sorts of respiratory irritation, shellfish closures, shellfishery closures. Um, it's super, super annoying. It's a big nuisance for us, and you know it has serious health implications and, and financial implications. So um, it's one of the big concerns. Is, you know, we we uh, it's a big topic of research here at Moat. And we have this automated means to detect it. And essentially, without getting into too much detail, I'll just say it's an in-situ spectrophotometer. And it's able to use an optical light absorption uh, fingerprinting. So it's like fingerprinting red tide and other uh, phytoplankton species based on how they absorb light. That's how it works. So by their color, basically. Yeah, yeah, by their color, right. By so uh, that's that's the uh, other instrument that is uh, sort of our claim to fame in ocean technology here. It actually uh, wasn't my doing. It was uh, developed by um, uh, my predecessor, Dr. Gary Kirkpatrick, um, really bright scientist here at Moat. Um, the, the new instrument is going to be able to do what's called colorimetric analysis. Ooh. So now, Joe, to now go we're back going to metric. what you said... You had, remember, it is looking at the color of the phytoplankton themselves. Yes. Now imagine you filter all the phytoplankton out, you take some other chemical, and we purposely react it with the filtered seawater, and it turns a color. Okay. And we measure that color, and the intensity of that color, um, based on our analytical design scheme, how we actually designed the, the, the instrument to work, that color will be proportional to what... To, to, to the actual chemical analyte, the chemical species that we're trying to measure. So in this case, we're interested in measuring iron, back to iron again. Now the OPD, uh, hopefully by October, uh, is going to be able to measure iron. And October is kind of our uh, target date because that's when our friends at Nav Ocean, remember this, the autonomous sailboat company that came and visited last year, last mm -hmm. June, yeah. and we had really successful uh, deployment, co-deployment of the glider and their sail drone. Uh, they're going to come back, and now we have the OPD uh, that's going to fit as a payload. And now imagine you have this sail drone going along the surface of the ocean where the where the glider can't get, right? So the gliders can't get the top surface of the ocean and the glider can't go in shallow waters. Uh, the sailboat can. Uh, so it's yet another tool to add to our arsenal to, to really but look because at red tide. So, I mean, I feel like we would be in our lives a little bit lost without ocean technology. <laughs> if you had to sum it up. No, he's laughing. Well, we would. The, the ocean technology specialist we, we would be is lost. laughing at me. I think we would be because we wouldn't it's, have all this red tide monitoring all this good stuff. I mean, can you sum it up for us, you know, why it's beneficial, what, what we're doing here? Sure. I mean, uh, honestly, it's, it's a fun place for me to come to work. I love coming to my lab, uh, working with really smart people all day long. They present us with scientific problems, and what we do in ocean technology is we develop new techniques or we enhance existing techniques. We develop new platforms. So, for instance, we'll provide a glider, um, and folks can put, say, their acoustic receivers on our glider, and now we have a more efficient way for them to sense fish. So we allow scientists at Moat to do uh, more efficient science uh, 
both with respect to cost and temporal and spatial analysis. So they get data at higher densities over time and over space uh, because of some of the work we do. You so make moat better. Yeah, they uh, make sure that our scientists and then the rest of us know what's going on in the ocean a Very little bit nice. more. That's a good way of uh, explaining it. Explain oh. it to me, Lucy. So really, it sounds like all of our scientists at Moat really need you guys, and they would be sad. So, but thank you for thank myself. you for coming and sitting and chatting with us. Yeah, and thank you. And it's we're been a pleasure. Good. We'll see you guys all for another episode of Two C Fans, Fans at Moat. At Moat. Thanks, Joe. In two Thanks, weeks. Haley. Two weeks. Later. I can't wait that long. <laughs>